Hello, sunshine. Hello, sunshine. Hello, sunshine. Gotta make hay while the sun shines. What's this? This is Hello, Sunshine. What if by sharing our stories, we could change the world? Welcome to Hello, Sunshine. Hello? Hello? Hola? Can you hear me? I'm just kidding. I'm in your ears. I'm Diane Guerrero, and this is How It Is, where you hear women tell their own stories in their own words. We're unfiltered, real, and totally ourselves. You're a queen. Okay, you guys, I am so excited to be here with you all because we have so much to talk about. I don't know about you, but every day I'm getting tons and tons of information on basically every subject. Between the news alerts and the Facebooks and the tweets and the DMs, it's constant. It's a lot. And what I realize is that even with all that information, what I really crave is wisdom. And to get that wisdom, I turn to women, to hear their stories, to get their advice, to absorb what they've learned, since they're the experts in their own lives. We are the experts in our own lives. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) We know how it is. For this season of How It Is, we've gotten together with the wisest women we know. I'm talking about Lena Waith, Krista Tippett, Ellen Powell, Monica Ramirez, Glennon Doyle, Jenny Yang, and so many more. We're talking about this Me Too moment of reckoning around sex, sexism, sexual assault, and sexual harassment. Even saying those words out loud is hard, but it's necessary because really what Me Too and Time's Up have become are a shorthand for how women use our voices to make change. And yes, these are tough conversations, but I'm feeling optimistic about what can come from truly listening to women's stories because that's what we're here for. So, gang, over the course of the season, we're going to be talking about our anger, our complexity, and the strength and power that comes from telling our stories. We're going to hear from so many phenomenal women, and I cannot wait to share with you. So first up, in this episode, we're talking anger with Rebecca Traster, Tarana Burke, and my girl crush, Gabrielle Union. I don't know about you... But lately, I've been feeling the rage. And it feels like, Mira, I don't know. Anger, anger feels like a hot ball. Like fire inside my belly. I'm just like, fury in my stomach. Like it's going to eat me up 
inside. You know, like when little kids throw tantrums and their little fists ball up, and that's what it feels like as an adult, where there's just a ragey rage. But it's not something that defines who I am. What about you, Reese? Anger feels like a boiling hot fire in my throat. I get a sore throat usually when I haven't said what I wanted to say. A literal sore throat, like my body responds to it. I normally find myself feeling most angry when I leave a conversation and I didn't say what I wanted to say. And I'll go into my car and I'll replay the conversation 7,000 times. And sometimes I'll shout in my car, that's not what I meant. I wanted to say this. You can't talk to me like that. Or you can't explain the internet to me. (laughs) And I find myself screaming alone and thinking, wow, I wish instead of getting boiling angry and saying it later to myself, I could learn how to get quiet, get calm, and say something thoughtful but very pointed in the moment. Oh my gosh, I can relate to this so much. It's like fire coming out of your ears or steam. I'm describing a Looney Tunes cartoon, but I'm a Looney Tune when I feel this. You know, and for all of my life, I haven't been allowed to be angry. As a woman of color, if you're angry and you show it, you're fitting into the stereotype, right? So me, as a woman who is so concerned to make my family proud and make my community proud and open doors for our community and for our women who are coming from the same situations, every time I feel like getting angry, I think about that stereotype the hot-headed Latina, the hot-headed women of color that's angry all the time. And so thinking of this stuff always made me hold back. And when I held back, it also stopped me from telling my truth. And so this creates a whole lot of problems, right? When you're not using your voice because you're afraid of people thinking you're angry. This is an emotion you cannot feel. And so what happens is I explode inside very quietly and I never know where to put these feelings. So it turns out there are literal experts in women and anger. And Rebecca Traster is one of them. She is an incredible writer and journalist whose book, Good and Mad, How Women's Anger is Transforming America, is coming out in October. She's the author of two other books, including Big Girls Don't Cry and All the Single Ladies, a book about how single women are changing culture and reshaping politics. Last fall, at the height of the Harvey Weinstein scandal, Rebecca was reporting on sexual harassment every week, and her writing really spelled out how it is for me. She has a way of looking at the past to explain the present. But what's actually crazy about all this is that we're taught to associate angry women with crazy women. And according to Rebecca, and I believe her, this isn't our fault. There are all kinds of cultural messages sent to women not to be angry, specifically not to be angry at men or at the power structures that oppress them or suppress them, right? And those messages are like, it'll make you ugly, you'll sound hysterical, people will think you're crazy, people will think you're bitter and shrill and nobody's going to like you. All those messages are sent to women. Here's the one area where women and girls are encouraged to be angry by our social and cultural messages, and that is angry at each other. 
And that takes a million forms. So it's like the fetishization, the almost sexualized fetishization of like pillow fights and hair pulls, right? Like cat fights, right? We understand just culturally that that's a cool thing is when ladies are angry at each other. And of course, it's structurally reinforced for adults, for example, when the power is a white male power. And so say, you know, there are arguments over men, right? Like who gets the resources? Who gets the male approval? Who gets the money? Who gets the boy? Who gets the clothes that will make you more attractive to the boy? Like there are all kinds of ways in which the things that are held out to women and the meagerness of the of the advantages that are held out to women cause them to fight with each other. You'll talk to lots of women who say, actually, the hardest time I've ever had in a workplace is actually with other women. Well, in part, when women first entered the workforce, that was right because there was sort of one slot held for them. And then they were made to fight against each other to get that slot. We can see that pattern replicating in all kinds of areas in our lives. I'm thinking so much about women's anger, again, not only at the kinds of oppression that they face, but at each other. I think there's this idea that if you're angry about things, that must be who you are as a human being. And that gets attached to women really quickly, like an angry woman. And of course, that's that's a dynamic that's far more complex and far more sticky for angry black women. I'm a white woman. You know, there's no way to talk about anger, especially anger in America and American politics and society without acknowledging the way that anger is racialized, especially for black women. There's been all kinds of activism and acts of resistance led by women of color. But very often, then it's when my white middle class women take up those ideas that they get popular traction, mass traction, that the media decides to pay attention to them or take them seriously. And that's one of the things that you can see happen around Tarana Burke and Me Too is that Tarana Burke is a woman of color who who has been at this for more than a decade. And it's when white middle class women take up literally the hashtag itself, make it th- this Twitter hashtag, that it gets acknowledged as a cultural force and as a nation reshaping and ideas reshaping movement. I mean, one of the things that I've been very anxious to talk to Tarana Burke about is the sort of co-optation of her message. Is she angry at the way in which a message that she pioneered and work that she's been doing for so long, she in some ways gets erased from at this point? I don't know if anger is the right word. I've been propelled by anger in a lot of different ways in, in movement work. You know, police killings make me angry. Watching people not find justice in the system that's unjust it makes me angry. What makes me sad and makes me frustrated is that in the first 24 hours of Me Too going viral, 12 million people across the world engaged with this hashtag. And I think about what would happen if 12 million people globally were to suddenly get some infectious disease, right, some wildly communicable disease, our 100% focus around the globe would be on finding a cure. The conversations in the media would be, how did this happen? How do we stop it? And how do we make sure it never happens again? People would be up in arms if articles started coming out saying, well, how do we date in the age of this new such-and-such disease? Or who do we blame? That's not what the focus should be. The focus in this moment should be on the millions of people who are asking for a cure. 
and who are also saying, we have solutions. Listen to us. And so right now, and I might get angry, you know, who knows? But right now I'm supremely frustrated and really, really sad that we can't have a better, more robust, more humane conversation around something that affects everybody's life. The reality is you are either a survivor or you know one. That voice you just heard was Tarana Burke, the founder of the Me Too movement. Tarana's the activist who coined the phrase Me Too more than 10 years ago when she was working with girls who had been abused. She knew then the power of sharing your story and knowing that you're not alone. But even now that women everywhere are coming forward, she's shocked that not much has changed. One of the things that is I find most interesting and odd, and not interesting in a good way necessarily, but just interesting about sexual violence, is that it is so pervasive. It crosses all kind of boundaries, and it's every part of the world. And yet, people who are survivors of sexual violence feel completely isolated. Over and over again, the thing that you hear is that people feel, say things like, I thought I was the only one. I didn't know anybody else went through this. I thought it was my fault. I th- you know, so so for something that touches so many lives, it's really, it's always been really interesting to me that the people who it affects feel like they're alone. And that's how deep it runs, the shame runs, and the culture of silence runs in our various communities that people don't talk about it or normalize it or compartmentalize it in such ways that we don't feel there's no space to have connection with other people. And so the power in those words is that it's the details of what happened to you matter less than the connection that you have with somebody else who recognizes the trauma that's left over from it. Do you know what I mean? So if one person was assaulted in college and one person is a survivor of child sexual abuse, there's a completely different details, completely different things that happen, but there's an underlying trauma that is very similar. And the the connection behind Me Too, it opens up a whole world to you, even if it's just between two people. It's a new world that says, I'm just not on this island alone. And we just underestimate the power of community, right? All of the, the ways that we talk about healing from sexual violence are individualistic. You need to go to therapy or counseling. You need to read these books. All of it is very isolated in what you do on your own. But I have seen through this work the power of community. Because of the way it was introduced to the world and because it, it, it happened on the back of this, the Hollywood scandals, people obviously associated with Hollywood scandals. And that's actually fine with me. But I think that we this idea that it's a movement about taking down powerful men is a dangerous notion. I also think that this, this idea that it's a witch hunt or it has targets on people's backs or these distracting conversations about, well, can we date in the age of Me Too? How do we date? Who can we hug in the age of Me Too? All of those are giant distractions away from the, the fact of the matter that there are millions of people around the world who have opened themselves up and are now saying, I need resources. Now I've done this thing. Can you help me? You know what I mean? What do I do now? And our focus should be on survivors. And so we have to shift the conversation away from perpetrators and accused and more so on the people who are surviving these things. And not just currently, like over the years. It's so, it's like a can of worms that's been open and we're not paying attention to it. (laughs) 
I value anger. I value rage in such a way that I also hold it close. Everybody is not welcome to my anger. Everybody is not privileged enough to feel my rage. And I, and I mean that in the same way that people are not welcome to, and, and to feel my joy. I've reserved that for occasions and for things and, and ideas and moments that are absolutely deserving of them. I spent a good part, because of the sexual violence I experienced, I spent a good part of my childhood being angry. <laughs> so my interaction with anger has changed over time. And so there was a time in my life when it was a shield. It was a protection for me. It, it allowed me to not have to engage with the emotions that were bubbling underneath and just use that as the way I engaged with the rest of the world. And then when I discovered the possibilities that joy in my life opened up, I really shifted from leaning into the trauma, which is where the anger was coming from, and moving to leaning into the joy. And when I did that is when I learned to reserve my anger. I found the usefulness in my anger, and I didn't just give it out to everybody because I think that anger is useful, and I think that when you wield it across everything, it becomes diluted. But the other part to it is that, and this is the thing that I, I really try to get people to understand about the Me Too movement as well. People get confused when I say it's a joy movement. And that's because what I have found to be the antidote to trauma and, and the, the anger that comes from trauma and the pain that comes from trauma and all of those kind of things is joy. And not just like, hey, we should all be happy, you know, because that's obviously not realistic. But I mean learning to cultivate joy in your life. What I find happens, because it happened to me and I've seen it happen to other people, is that the thing that traumatized you, that that whatever it is, it's sexual violence or other violence, other things, the thing that traumatizes you becomes a part of your identity. And it becomes so a part of your identity that it becomes like a security blanket. It's not that it feels good to think about it and, and stay in that place. It's comfortable. It's familiar. And so we lean into that trauma every time something happens. But I really taught myself, and I'm always constantly teaching myself, and part of this movement is teaching other survivors to lean into the joy, to look for it, to crave it. One of the things we, uh, in our healing circles, we do is create um, joy journals. You know, everybody has a gratitude journal and this and that, but it works. It's hokey, but the stuff works. And the assignment is usually to have people spend a week writing down the joyous things in your life, just documenting. You don't have to write paragraphs about it, but just document it. What are the things that bring you joy? Little joys, whether it's extra foam in your latte or big joys is listening to your child laugh, whatever that is. I need you to document those things because the curation of that is where you have to train your brain to go when the anger consumes you. When the, the residuals from your trauma start to consume you, you have to find a place, a soft place to land. And that is what the curation of the joy helps you to do. That's, that's, that's a big part of why I'm here today. I am Tarana Burke, and I am a mother, a survivor, an organizer, and a warrior. I think we could all benefit from a joy journal. You know what would be in mind today? Me driving for the first time, which is this week. <laughs> I just started driving. It's something that has terrified me for a very long time. I'm 31 years old. And 
it's just been such a freeing experience. And I did it on my own time. I had to get there. But I made the decision to go for it. And I'm feeling great for it. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling empowered. I'm feeling like I'm a woman. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but I'm feeling really inspired right now. Listening to Rebecca and Tarana makes me think about all the different types of righteous female anger. There's change the world anger. There's standing up for yourself anger. There's revenge anger, which, of course, always makes me think of. And you know what I'm going to say, ladies. Waiting to exhale. When Angela Bassett throws her cheating husband's clothing into his car and burns it. And as she's walking away, she's smoking that cigarette, honey. I, I love that scene, not because, oh, this cheating man. And, oh, and we have to burn his stuff down. And I'm like, yeah, get him. It's more the reason behind it, why she did it. Because she had spent so many years helping this man build his business. Because she was his secretary. I was your lover and your secretary. Working every day of the week. You know, it's that feeling of like, I put so much work into this company. Into, into our lives and to be just discarded that way in such a humiliating way. That's, that righteousness is what gets me. It's like, ooh, I'm gonna turn, I'm gonna turn it around. I just saw that power in that film and I was like, man, if, that, if anything like that ever happens to me, I'm gonna turn it around. I've obviously been inspired by movies my whole life, and there's one movie star who has inspired me, not only on screen, but in her activism and in her life, Gabrielle Union. Um, I've loved her since 10 Things I Hate About You, since Bring It On, Being Mary Jane. I mean, I, I love this woman's work so much. She's been a longtime advocate for victims of sexual assault, as well as for gender equality overall. Oh, and um, yeah, she's an author and an incredible actress. This woman is an inspiration. If you follow her on Instagram, which you should, you know she is a woman who loves to laugh and be joyful. But when she wakes up every day, she's not afraid of being angry either. Every morning I'm like, do I look at Twitter? Do I look at social media? I'm going to be angry. But I need to be angry. Otherwise, I'm going to sit on my ass and think, I'm straight. Life is good. Ah, too bad about the others. But I made it. You know, you need to be angry. You need to be aware. You need to be uncomfortable. And most of us are not really willing to stay in a place of being uncomfortable for too long. But that's also how we get complacent. That's also how we get to, ah, it's good enough. But if we want real change, systematic change, generational change, good enough isn't, you know, enough. 
if you're informed in this day and age, you're going to be angry and to stay constantly in a state of anger and inspiration. And when those two things are married, you are going to accomplish some shit and it's necessary. I'm never going to be cool with oppression. I'm never going to be cool with, uh, you know, black and brown lives not mattering. I will never be cool with a lack of opportunities for for women. I will never be cool with misogyny or sexism or any ism. I'm just that's just not how I'm built. But I can also find time for some joy and peace. I have found peace in my rage because I know it's keeping the fire burning. It's not going to be an inferno because I couldn't function, but it's that flame. It's like the Olympic torch. It's always lit. And when it's extinguished, I'm not effective. It's, it's infuriating that, you know, I've been talking about being a rape survivor for 20 years. Um, and the, the, on the one hand, I'm immediately believed. But on the other hand, I'm also asked, well, what were you wearing? Even though I'm very clear that I was at work in a tunic and leggings, it wasn't the best outfit, but like, I was like, fucking work at Payless. Um, what did you have on? Like, what did you do? Like, because like, everyone wants to think that there must have been something you did or something about you that you somehow had control over that triggered some normally non-rapey person to just magically become a rapist. You had to have had some kind of control over it. And if you had some kind of control over it, that means I could have some kind of control over protecting myself. And then again, we get into the coulda, woulda, shoulda. Well, if, I, if it was me, I woulda. Okay, well, I was 19 at work in a tunic and leggings, I was raped at gunpoint by a stranger. I got the after school job I was supposed to get in college. I, I couldn't have done anything else better. And I was still, you know, raped and beaten at gunpoint. And when you hear about a lot of the Me Too's, and I hate, I hate the phrase date rape because what they mean to say is in some kind of capacity, you had seen your assailant before. Could have been just passing in the hallways. You didn't even have to need to have spoken to the person. But if you attended the same school or church or lived on the same block, whether you spoke to them or not, they would call that date rape, acquaintance rape. What they never really call it is sexual violence and rape. Rape that will change the course of your life. What they do do is minimize the responsibility of the rapist and put the onus of the sexual violence onto the victim. And it's bullshit every time. I remember being in group therapy at UCLA and I was the only stranger rape. And how my stranger rape during certain sessions would silence other people. Or they'd start, well, you know, mine's not like, you know, Gabrielle's because like I, you know, like I, I knew, you know, it's my lab partner or whatever. And, and you know, the, the moderator would say, no, 
Rape is rape is rape is rape. There are no degrees of rape. There's no better rapes than others. You know, people say, gosh, you're raped. I mean, if you had to be raped, it's quite ideal. You know, I have to be raped in an affluent community by an assailant that was apprehended who faced the criminal justice system who's in prison and you were believed by law enforcement, by your family, by your friends, by your community. Now that I'm a celebrity, I'm, I'm believed by, you know, millions. I'm, I'm held up, used as an example for how you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and overcome rape and be a cheerleader fighting for cultural appropriation. And it's bullshit. Everybody should be able to have the same experience. You know, the pain is the same. It hurts. It can derail your life. It can change the course of your life. It can shape shift. You know, while everyone's experience isn't identical, the pain is universal. There's a reason why rape is the most underreported crime in the world. There's a reason we will never have accurate statistics for sexual violence because of this perceived gray area and degrees or legitimacy of rape. And we drive people underground and sometimes we drive people into the grave because we pick and choose whose pain gets to be heard, whose pain gets to be prioritized, whose pain is acted upon, whose pain inspires legislation, whose pain gets to be named, a law named after them. That's big. But if you're just a girl, just a woman, and for whatever reason people have decided that you played a part in being targeted for sexual violence, what do you say? I say, Fuck everybody who ever fucking told you that your pain is not real, that your rape was somehow in any kind of way your fault. You have to fight fire with fire. And we have to keep telling our stories until there is no gray area. There is no degrees or legitimacy. It's all fucking rape. And they're all acted upon with the same enthusiasm and rage and action as the next one. I am Gabrielle Union. I am a black woman. I am flawed. I am perfectly imperfect. I'm obsessed with words. I love silence. I also love vengeance. And I'm on Team Fuck It. Team Fuck It for the win! So I gotta say, I've learned so much from listening to these three brilliant women. And it really has changed the way I think about anger. Now, I know that I'm a change maker. I know that I want to make my community better. I know that I want to affect change. But I think that the missing link with that, and for me personally, was that I wasn't allowing anger to be a part of it. When in reality, I was really angry. And that was the reason why I decided to be a change maker. And now owning that anger brings me tons of relief because I know that I can wake up, be angry in the morning and say, "Okay, how can I make this a positive thing? 
how can I affect change, not just within myself, but with those around me. And that is so healing. And it's inspiring because I know that every day I'm going to be angry. So that means I have a chance to make something positive. And that, my friends, is how it is. On this episode, you heard from Rebecca Traster, Tarana Burke, Gabrielle Union, and me. I'm Diane Guerrero. I'm a Latina. I'm an author, an actress, and an activist. I am also a human being, a citizen of this universe. How It Is is a production of Hello Sunshine. It is executive produced by Amy S. Choi, Rebecca Lair, and Reese Witherspoon. Our senior producers are Jillian Ferguson and Michelle Lands, And our producer is Charlotte Coe. Sound design by Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our theme song, Queen, is written and performed by Victoria Canal. And now that you've heard how it is, head over to our website to learn about what we do. Visit hello-sunshine.com to read, learn, and make things happen. And in the meantime, don't forget to find us on Instagram, Facebook, and if you liked what you heard today, go ahead. Give us all the stars on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for our episode on the gray area and how we're learning to embrace all of the nuances and complexities of being a person in the world, telling hard truths, especially at this moment in time. What would Gabrielle say about that? Fuck the gray area. Ooh, get ready. You guys, this is really fun. Yeah, it's really fun.